TED Talks are recorded live at the TED Conference and produced with WNYC New York Public Radio. This episode features Oxford statistician Peter Donnelly. TED Talks are made possible through the support of BMW, where ideas are everything. Here's Peter Donnelly. Someone, uh, one of my senior colleagues told me when I was uh, a youngster in this profession, uh, rather proudly, that, uh, that statisticians were people who liked figures but didn't have the personality skills to become accountants. Uh, and there's another in-joke amongst statisticians, and that's, how do you tell the introverted statistician from the extroverted statistician? To which the answer is, the extroverted statistician's the one who looks at the other person's shoes. <laughs> My brief is to tell you some exciting things about statistics, and get you thinking about the place of uncertainty and randomness and chance in our world, and how we react to that, and how well we do or don't think about it. So here's the scene for the first question I'm going to ask you. Suppose we've got a a test for a disease which isn't infallible, but it's pretty good. It gets it right 99% of the time. And I take one of you, or I take someone off the street, and I test them for the disease in question. Let's suppose there's a test for HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. And the test says the person has the disease. What's the chance that they do? Test gets it right 99% of the time, so a natural answer is... 99%. That's what you might think. It's not the answer, and it's not because it's only part of the story. It actually depends on how common or how rare the disease is. So let's think about a disease that affects, it's pretty rare, it affects one person in 10,000, of uh, a million individuals. Most of them are healthy, and some of them will have the disease. And in fact, if this is the prevalence of the disease, about 100 will have the disease, and the rest won't. So now suppose we test them all. What happens? Well, amongst the 100 who do have the disease, the test will get it right 99% of the time, and 99 will test positive. Amongst all these other people who don't have the disease, the test will get it right 99% of the time. It'll only get it wrong 1% of the time, but there are so many of them that there'll be an enormous number of false positives. Put that another way, of all of them who test positive, less than 1 in 100 actually have the disease. So even though we think the test is accurate... The important part of the story is there's another bit of information we need. Here's the key intuition. What we have to do once we know the test is positive is to weigh up the plausibility or the likelihood of two competing explanations. Each of those explanations has a likely bit and an unlikely bit. One explanation is that the person doesn't have the disease. That's overwhelmingly likely if you pick someone at random. But the test gets it wrong, which is unlikely. The other explanation is that the person does have the disease, that's unlikely, but the test gets it right, which is likely. And the number we end up with, that number which is a little bit less than one in a hundred, is to do with how likely one of those explanations is relative to the other. Each of them taken together is unlikely. Here's a more topical example of exactly the same thing. Those of you in Britain uh, will know about what's become rather a celebrated case of a woman called Sally Clark who had two babies who died suddenly, and initially it was thought that they died of what's known informally as cot death and more formally as sudden infant death syndrome. For various reasons, she was later charged with murder, and at the trial, her trial, a very distinguished paediatrician gave evidence that the chance of two cot deaths, innocent deaths, in in a family like hers, which was professional and non-smoking, was one in 73 million. 
cut a long story short, uh, she was convicted at the time, later, fairly recently, acquitted on appeal, in fact, on the second appeal. Uh, and, and just to set it in context, you can imagine how awful it is for someone to have lost one child and then two, uh, if they're innocent, to be convicted of murdering them, to be put through the stress of the trial, convicted of murdering them, and to spend time in a women's prison where all the other prisoners think you killed your children. It's a really awful thing to happen to someone. And it happened in large part here because the expert got the statistics horribly wrong. In two different ways. So where did he get the one in 73 million number? He looked at some research which said the chance of one cot death in a family like uh, Sally Clark's is about one in eight and a half thousand. So he said, I'll assume that if you have one cot death in a family, the chance of a second child dying from cot death aren't changed. So that's what statisticians would call an assumption of independence. It's like saying if you toss a coin and get a head the first time, that won't affect the chance of getting a head the second time. So if you toss a coin, tw a coin twice, the chances of getting a head twice are a half, that's the chance the first time, times a half, the chance the second time. So he said, here, let's assume, uh, I'll assume that these uh, events are independent. When you multiply 8,500 together twice, you get about 73 million. And none of this was stated to the court as an assumption or presented to the jury that way. Unfortunately here, and really regrettably, first of all, in a situation like this, you'd have to verify it, it empirically. And secondly, it's palpably false. There are lots and lots of things that we don't know about sudden infant deaths. It might well be that there are environmental factors that we're not aware of, and it's pretty likely to be the case that there are genetic factors we're not aware of. So if a family suffer from one cot death, you'd put them in a high-risk group. They've probably got these environmental risk factors and or genetic risk factors we don't know about. And to argue then that the chance of a second death is as if you didn't know that information is really silly. It's worse than silly, it's really bad science. Nonetheless, that's how it was presented, and at trial, nobody even argued it. That's the first uh, problem. The second problem is, what does the number of 1 in 73 million mean? So after Sally Clark was convicted, you can imagine it made rather uh, a splash in the press, one of the journalists from, from uh, Britain, one of Britain's more reputable newspapers wrote that what the expert had said was the chance that she was innocent was 1 in 73 million. Now, that's a logical error. It's exactly the same logical error as the logical error of thinking that after the disease test, which is 99% accurate, the chance of having the disease is 99%. In the disease example, we had to bear in mind two things, one of which was the possibility that the test got it right or not, and the other one was the chance a priori that the person had the disease or not. It's exactly the same in this context. There are two things involved, two parts to ex the explanation, we want to know how likely, or relatively how likely, two different explanations are. One of them is that Sally Clark was innocent, which is a priori overwhelmingly likely. Most mothers don't kill their children. And the second part of the explanation is that she suffered an incredibly unlikely event. Not as unlikely as one in 73 million, but nonetheless rather unlikely. The other explanation is that she was guilty. Now, that's, we, we probably think a priori that's unlikely, and we certainly should think in the context of a criminal trial that that's unlikely because of the presumption of innocence. And then, if she were trying to kill the children, she succeeded. So, the chance that she's innocent isn't one in 73 million. We don't know what it is. It has to do with weighing up the strength of the other evidence against her and the statistical evidence. We know the children died. What matters is how likely or unlikely, relative to each other, the two explanations are, and they're both implausible. There's a situation where 
errors in statistics had really profound and really unfortunate consequences. In fact, there are two other women who are convicted on the basis of the evidence of this paediatrician who have subsequently been released on appeal. Many cases were reviewed, and it's particularly topical because he's currently facing a disrepute charge at Britain's General Medical Council. So just to conclude, what are the take-home messages from this? Well, we, we know that randomness and uncertainty and chance are very much a part of our everyday life. It's also true you're completely typical in not getting the examples I gave right. It's very well documented that people get things wrong. They make errors of logic in reasoning with uncertainty. We can cope with the subtleties of language brilliantly. There are interesting evolutionary questions about how we got here. We are not good at reasoning with uncertainty. That's an issue in our everyday lives. Statistics underpins an enormous amount of research in science, in social science, in medicine, and indeed quite a lot of industry. All of quality control, which has had a major impact on industrial processing, is underpinned by statistics. It's something we're bad at doing. At the very least, we should recognize that, and we tend not to. To go back to the, the legal context, at the Sally Clark trial, all of the lawyers just accepted what the experts said. So if a paediatrician had come out and said to a jury, I know how to build bridges, I built one down the road, please drive your car home over it, they would have said, well, paediatricians don't know how to build bridges, that's what engineers do. On the other hand, he came out and effectively said, or, or implied, I know how to reason with uncertainty, I know how to do statistics, and everyone said, well, that's fine, he's an expert. So we need to understand where our competence is and isn't. Exactly the same kinds of issues arose in the early days of DNA profiling, when scientists and lawyers, and in some cases judges, routinely misrepresented evidence, usually one hopes innocently, but misrepresented evidence. Uh, forensic scientists said the chance that this guy is innocent is one in three million. That wasn't what, even if you believe the number, just like the 73 million to one, that's not what it meant. And there have been celebrated appeal cases in Britain and elsewhere because of that. Uh, and just to finish in the, in the context of the legal system, it's all very well to say, let's do our best to present the evidence, but more and more in cases of DNA profiling, uh, this is another one, we expect juries who are ordinary people, and it's documented they're very bad at this, we expect juries to be able to cope with the sorts of, of reasoning that goes on. In, in other spheres of life, if people are argued, well, except possibly for politics, but in other spheres of life, if people argued illogically, we'd say that's not a good thing. We sort of accept it as politicians and, and don't hope for much more. In the case of uncertainty, we get it wrong all the time. And at the very least, we should be aware of that, and ideally, we might try and do something about it. Thanks very much. That was Peter Donnelly, recorded at TED Global in Oxford, England, July 2005. TED Talks are produced by WNYC New York Public Radio for TED. TED Talks are made possible through the support of BMW, where ideas are everything. For more information on TED, visit TED.com.